Hi, and welcome to The Unveiling. I'm Tim, one of the hosts, and along with Ajay and Mark, we are three guys discussing the one true gospel. We hope you're encouraged by this episode. Let's dive right in. Hello, and welcome to The Unveiling. We're glad you're here. Whether you're a first-time listener or you've been here before, always a pleasure to have you. This is episode 70, and it is titled Defining Repentance. Hello, Mark. How are you? Pretty good, Tim. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's glad to see you. Um, I notice we're missing somebody quite conspicuously. There seems to be a strange silence, <laughs> and it's almost like, almost like we have time to talk now. <laughs> <laughs> well, for those of you who haven't figured it out, Ajay is not here with us tonight. He is off traveling, and no amount of rescheduling was going to make this work. So Mark and I are going to take off with this subject, which means a lot less argument because well, Mark and I are always in one black spirit step. So Ajay's kind of like our training wheels, keeps us from wiping out, keeps us steady and stable. So we'll see what happens tonight, too. <laughs> well, Mark, it, it, despite my fear that I'm going to make this an extremely short episode, defining repentance, I did something silly and went straight to Webster's and looked up the word repent. And interestingly enough, it has two or three minor variation uh, definitions. The first one is to turn from sin and dedicate oneself to the amendment of one's life. Mm. Yeah, we'll get, hold on, hold on, we'll get there. Okay. okay. And the other one says uh, to feel regret or contrition. And then the last one says to change one's mind. Now, You've said this in podcasts in the past, and I'm not going to steal your thunder, but I am going to mention that the word in Greek is metanoia, and it means to change your mind. But when the church, I've been taught my whole life that repent means more that first definition, to turn from sin and dedicate oneself to the amendment of one's life. So that sounds like confessing my sin, asking forgiveness, and then you know, pulling myself up by my bootstraps, putting my shoulder to the wheel, working hard to not sin no more. So, so why? what makes you think that's not right? Well, I think, to be more correct, the problem isn't the word repentance. There's nothing wrong with repentance. Repentance is awesome, actually, when you know what the correct definition is, okay? And unfortunately, in this day and age, um, most churches have it wrong. I'm sorry. I don't mean to be getting in the face of theologians and pastors, but um, I think it was I think it was Luther who said that a peasant armed with scripture has got greater authority than a pope or a church council who are just speaking of their own opinions. So hopefully we're leaning on scripture here, Tim, and our listeners listeners can decide from themselves what the scriptures tell us about repentance. So, but. That's the key there. It's how you define the word, as you just mentioned. Okay, let's let's dig into that a little bit because I have sure. I've got to say that I and I did look this up today just to be sure I was right. Uh, between the Old and the New Testament, at least in the King James version of the Bible, the word repent and several of its uh, you know repentance, repenting, uh, it's it's in the Bible a hundred and five times. I believe that's. Uh, 45 times in the Old Testament and 60 times in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. And the phrase, repent from sin or anything like that, doesn't actually appear anywhere. So I'm already confused. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Yeah, that's the key, Tim. It does occur under the old covenant, but that's the law because you have to get rid of the sin in your life if you're going to follow that law. But the problem is none of us can do that. We can do it for a day or for a minute or if you're me, 30 seconds maybe. But the point is the standard is keeping that from birth to death perfectly. Once you get to the new covenant, and, and I always say this is a great day to live right now because you can go into an online Bible and you have you just type in a word and it brings that word up every single time through the Bible. And if you and what is preached now, and how many our listeners, I'm sure they've heard this if they've ever gone to church many, many times. You'll hear the sermon telling you that you need to repent of your sin and put your faith in God. Repent of sin and turn to God. Nowhere in the New Testament, New Covenant, as you mentioned, Tim, does it say even once that we are to repent of our sin. What it does say over and over again is repent for the forgiveness of sins. Now, that's a big difference. And I came up with this little uh, way of putting it here. We don't repent of sin for forgiveness. We repent for forgiveness of sin. The difference is the first one, if you've got to first get rid of your sin before you can be forgiven, before you can turn to God, then you can't turn to God and you can't be forgiven because you have to do it perfectly. But thankfully, that's not what Scripture tells us. Uh, Mark 1, 4, Luke 3, 3, Luke 24, 47, Acts 2, 38, Acts 3, 19. I'm not going to read them all, but there are a ton of places where it tells us to repent for the forgiveness of sin. Not once does it say repent of sin for forgiveness, okay? And thank God that it doesn't say that because we can't do it. You just rattled off a list of verses that I was planning to bring up, and now I won't. Well, you can bring That doesn't mean you can't bring them up. <laughs> and one other point I wanted to make, that when John, when John the Baptist came preparing the way for the Christ, he preached a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Once again, those two little words, of and for. You get them backwards, the whole message is backwards, and there is no hope. So that's what John the Baptist preached. He didn't say, repent of your sin, and then God will forgive you. He said, repent for the forgiveness of sins. Same thing with Peter on the day of Pentecost. Jerusalem was filled with Jews coming there from all different nations, all different tongues, and the Spirit was given to believers that day. Peter stood up among all the disciples in the streets with thousands looking, and he preached. He said these words, in Acts 3.19, he said, Repent then and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Now, what he didn't say and what modern churches say is he didn't say, Repent, wipe out your sins, then turn to God, so times of refreshing may come. No, it's the turning to God first, because we can't do it by our power. In fact, the only hope we ever have of sin diminishing in our lives is taking our own eyes off of trying to get rid of sin and fixing the gaze of our soul on Christ, leaving it there and living in his spirit, who over time will transform us into his image. And as we become more like Christ, sin just naturally, or better yet, supernaturally, 
dissipates in our life. So when we tell people they got to get rid of their sin first, you're keeping them for the only way, the only person that can do that. Yeah, not agreed. And that uh, that little distinction, two words, what is it you said, repent? We repent for forgiveness of sin. We don't repent of sin for forgiveness. That's a work. That would be works if you had to stop all your sinning before you're forgiven. But those two little words completely rearrange. What is it you call your your uh, hundred and... Yeah, it's the 180-degree factor, and it almost always leads back to an incorrect understanding of the law and of the gospel. The law says repent of your sin for the for forgiveness. Grace, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, faith in him alone says repent for forgiveness of sin. And repent, remember, it means to change your mind. It's take a new outlook. It's it's changing your mind about who God is, how he feels about humanity, who I am, what is my status with him before faith in him, who am I now that I have put my faith in him. When you don't understand those basic tenets of the gospel, you tend to get things 180 degrees wrong. Well, I will say this. There's a great, there's a little story in Matthew 21 that Jesus told that gives me what I think is the clearest context for what repent means because uh, he's telling the story of the uh, well let me it's going to be faster to read it than explain it so uh but what think you and this is verse 28 in matthew 21 but what think you a certain man had two sons and he came to the first and said son go to work today in my vineyard he answered and said i will not but afterward he repented and went he didn't go to dad and he, he repented and went. So in other words, repent, if it means change your mind, he changed his mind and he left. He didn't go to dad, go, oh, I'm sorry, I've sinned against you, forgive me, make me whole. He just went, no, I changed my mind, I'm out, I'm gone, I'm doing it. Yep, change of mind. It's that metanoia right there too, the same word. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, uh, another little point is the way that it's incorrectly translated is from the word penititia. Yeah which means penance. It means to do acts of contrition. It means to feel bad about your sin, to grovel over it, to go give money and to go do works or to say a thousand our fathers to make up for it. That's penitentia. That's the wrong word for pet repentance, though. Metanoia is the correct word. Yeah, and repentance, I believe, is very closely related to punishment and you know, that's that's not, Jesus never says, I'm going to punish you anywhere, ever. So that's a bad translation of that word. Okay, so, yeah, there's a lot of verses that, uh, like you said, you rattled off a couple at the beginning, and I'd encourage everybody to go look those up. So I'm going to bring up one more verse, and I'm going to read the whole verse. Uh, Acts, Acts 20, 21 says, Testifying to both the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance towards God Repentance toward God, changing my mind towards God. Not doesn't even say my sin, doesn't say my my nature, doesn't say all the bad things I've done, but it just changing my mind toward God, about God. And when you really think about it, even just from a logical, uh, in a logical manner as opposed to scriptural, which the two are never obviously scripture, is probably one of the most logical books there are in the world, but... Um, Unless we change our mind toward God, who he is, 
who we are. That's like the core world view right there. Unless we change that, why would we even want to get rid of sin? You know, and, and that, that reminds me, like, imagine that there's a pastor or a theologian who is just so eloquent, so clever, so dynamic, a motivational speaker that he could actually convince the unbelieving world that their bad, their sin, their bad behavior was sin. Imagine that he was that good that he could do it. What good would it do him? Zero, because they don't have the power. Even if you convince them what they're doing is bad, they don't have the power to change that unless they change their minds and turn to God and to his only way of changing that situation, which is his beloved son that he sent to perfectly fulfill that law in us and on our behalf and then give his life as a sacrifice. Well, that's a good point, Mark, because even atheists understand right and wrong, good and bad, evil, whatever. Uh, the problem that they run into is because they don't believe in God, they don't have any power over any of that in their lives. They're living proof day in and day out that, you know, uh, we can't keep the law. We can't keep the commandments. We can't be sinless. And so that should be enough to convince some people that there, there's a need for something more which can erase that in their lives. And, and yeah, that's a very interesting point, Mark. And you know, Tim, on what you just said there, sin is such, it's so much a part of our nature. That's one of the things we change our mind about, that we are not innately good, but that there's as great as God has made us, we're fearfully and wonderful made, we can think, we can love, we're made in so many wonderful ways, yet still, somewhere down at the heart, there's a nature that's corrupt and that's easily corrupted. And, and the point is, sin is so much in us that we cannot do anything about it on our own, and that's why we're in desperate need of a Savior. Even after we become Christians, now we've got the Spirit, and he's, you know, don't get me wrong, he for sure is starting to transform us into the image of Christ. How? Not by us looking at our sin and trying hard to get right, rid of it, trying to feel guilty about it. No, by keeping our eyes on Christ. But even after we're Christians, we don't stop sinning, okay? Now, if, you could, if, if I could think of the most mature Christian, committed Christian in the world, I would say it was the Apostle Paul, okay? Now, the Apostle Paul, this is him talking about his own pedigree and resume. He says he's talking about uh, the other apostles, and he says, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are there Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from river, rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. 
Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the teachers. And all these things Paul suffered, he suffered for the gospel, for the Lord Jesus Christ. Has there been a more committed Christian? So you would think this guy must have like zero sin in his life, right? He actually saw the resurrected Christ. And yet what does Paul say in Romans seven fourteen? He says, we know that the law is spiritual. And this is after Paul's a Christian. He's not talking about before he came to Christ. He says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. So I'm going to skip down a little to the 21 here, Romans 7, 21. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? And he doesn't answer by saying, well, I will by trying harder to overcome the sin in my life and repent of it. No, he says, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. And while on the surface it sounds real spiritual and pious and religious for you to do everything and work hard to get rid of the sin in your life, to read more self-help books and go to more services where the pastor's guilting you and telling you to reflect on your sin, it doesn't work. It gets you nowhere. It is not profitable, as the Apostle Paul tells us in Second in uh, Titus 3.14. Uh, it's not profitable. It doesn't do anything. And as religious as that sounds, for you to work hard to get rid of your sin, it really, I believe, is tantamount to idol worship. You're taking your eyes off Christ and trying to do it yourself. That's not why Christ died. He, Christ, he died to bring you into him and him into you to have a union with you and to, and to trust when he says that your sin has been removed as far as the east is from the west, and I remember it no more. Why does the church put such a big focus, Tim, on sin when Jesus and God the Father clearly tell us they don't even remember our sin? Why would we want to keep reminding them of what a bad sinner we are? First of all, it's not true because the cross was more than sufficient and more than efficient to take care of those problems. Now we're children of God, sons and daughters and heirs. Well, something you said at the beginning of that resonated with me in that I hear a lot of people say in the world today that, you know, people are mostly good. And I can't help but laugh at that because I believe the exact opposite. I don't think we have the nature to be good. Uh, and even if we get to a point in our lives where we understand right and wrong and we feel like we don't want to do wrong, certainly not all people choose that, but even those that do can't, cannot keep that up, cannot, cannot not do wrong because it's in their nature to do wrong. And as, as Paul said, that which I would do, I don't do. And that which I would not do, that I do. You know, it's just the nature of the human being in the flesh. Well, you know, that's really, really a religious viewpoint when you think about it. For atheists and secular humanists, 
because all you have to do is open your eyes and take a look at the world, what's going on. Does it seem like mankind is getting better? Like we're getting morally better? The 20th century, more people were killed during that century than any other century in the history of the world. And yeah, we're basically good and we're getting better. We just need more education and that'll do it. (laughs) Then why aren't people with PhDs sin free? I would say to them, right? Hey, even pastors who absolutely love the Lord still make mistakes, still commit sin. And these are the, these are the guys who are literally up there putting themselves up, trying to, trying to say, I love Jesus so much, and they still can't keep themselves out of it. It's just not possible, you know? So we, you know, Mark, let's, we've, we've talked about what repentance really means, and we've given some examples, and we've talked through some of this, but tell me, because we are taking what doesn't seem to be a very popular viewpoint of what repentance means, because that's not what's being taught today, how did we get here? With, if the word really only means change your mind, how did it become about beating yourself up over your sin? Well, if you would have asked me about two weeks ago, Tim, I would have said, I don't have a clue. <laughs> you know, But it's funny because a couple of weeks ago, I was listening to a message from a famed theologian. He was speaking on something else, but he was teaching on the church fathers throughout church history. And what I found out, and, and this is my personal belief, Nobody has to believe it, but it makes so much sense to me, okay? So in the 5th century, the the main Bible that the world used for over a thousand years was put together by a, a, a gentleman named Jerome, and it was called the Vulgate. It was translated into Latin from the original Hebrew and Greek because that's what, it was the Roman Empire at that time, and that's what people spoke. And then it was adopted by the Roman Catholic Church. And so for a thousand years, the Vulgate was the Bible. There was only one problem with that Vulgate. It was a really bad translation. And when you have a really bad translation, it leads to bad doctrine, and it makes it easier for it to be twisted. And so a lot of bad doctrines came out of that. Well, in the 15th century, The world's leading biblical scholar was a man named Erasmus, okay? And he was one generation ahead of the Great Reformation and the Reformers. And and so in the the early 1500s, just before the Reformation occurred, he translated from the original Greek manuscripts, he created a Bible entitled the Novum Instrumentum, which meant the new instrument. And what he did is, with all his, his he, well, as I mentioned, he was the leading biblical scholar. He did an awesome translation from the original Greek. So each page of his Bible, this new instrument, on the left side of it would be in Greek, and on the right side would be the Latin Vulgate. And when he did that, it caused a big stir, because now it was showing that a lot of the doctrines the church had developed over a thousand years, were created on improper translations. And so now you had this original Greek, and they could see, wait a minute, this isn't right. This says metanoia. It doesn't say penititia. It says change your mind here. And yet, so this is where that doctrine came from. So when the church now has adopted that in modern times, after the gospel and the rediscovery of the gospel, in the Reformation, they're going back to the Vulgate. 
They're going back to a thousand early years of false translation and are reading it as repenting of sin, that it's penitentia, penance, contrition. I also think that back then, the, the preachers, the pastors, the people who were teaching found it easier to control people by talking to them about their sins, their actions, their their outwardly signs. And by trying to control, you know, by controlling your actions, I can control what you do, what you think, what you listen to, etc. And I think that there was a modicum of desire there on their part to use that to their advantage. That's a great point. In fact, Tim, that's the very reason that Erasmus put that Bible together to confront the corruption in the church and the way they were manipulating the people through those incorrect translations and doctrines to give to the church, to do penance, to do acts of good works. It was, it was a modicum of control for them over the people. Well, we're not meant to be controlled by other men. We're meant to be controlled by the Holy Spirit through Christ alone. Amen. Amen. Well, you know what, Mark? I think we've covered this topic pretty well. It's amazing how fast we can get done and uh, when Ajay's not around. <laughs> we miss you, Ajay. You know we can. We do. We do. Can't wait to have him back next week at this time. Uh, but however, uh, let us take a few moments to summarize or, or add any last thoughts we want before we head out. Yeah, I'd love to do that, Tim. Thanks. So my first disclaimer that Tim and I and Ajay try to give anytime we talk about the law or works is that we're not saying sin is not bad. We're not saying works are bad. What we're saying is that sin is bad and it destroys people's lives. It, people destroy the lives of their loved ones. It does irreparable harm to the world. We're not saying it's not bad. What we're saying is our only hope is Jesus Christ. We can't do it. We can't repent of our own sin. And the gospel, the new covenant in Christ's blood, doesn't call us to do that. It calls us to change our minds and turn to Jesus. That, that would be uh, my final summary. And I'll just kind of want to end with that one line. And I'll put it this way. We're not called to repent of sin for forgiveness. We're called to repent for forgiveness of sin. Amen. That was the, that was the piece I was going to reiterate as well. But I'll st instead st uh, end with another verse, which is uh, Mark 1, 4. Uh, John did baptize in the wilderness and preach the baptism of repentance for remission of sins. And that's uh, the story of John the Baptist appears in multiple of the uh, first four Gospels. And this particular line is said pretty much exactly the same way anywhere it appears. So once again, uh, I won't I won't beat the dead horse and reiterate that line and yet again, Mark, but that is exactly it. And, you know, for that 180 degree factor, I think you've put out a couple of blogs and teachings uh, kind of revolving around that idea. So I want to encourage anybody who wants to look at that even a little bit more. Feel free to go out to our website, check out our blogs at www.theunveiledgospel.com. And thanks for hearkening back to that, by the way, Tim. <laughs> had, to, had to get that in there. Thank you very much, Mark. And on that note, thank you, everybody, for listening. We hope you've been blessed, and we look forward to talking to you again the next time. Tim again. Thanks for listening today. 
We hope you were blessed by today's message. If so, we encourage you to subscribe and share our podcast with your friends and family. Our entire catalog of episodes can be found on our website at www.theunveiledgospel.com or you can listen and subscribe on most popular podcast apps. If you have any feedback or questions, you can send us an email to theunveiledgospel at yahoo.com. You can reach out to us on our Facebook page, The Unveiling Podcast, or you can leave a question or comment on our listener line at 352-398-0089. Maybe you'll hear yourself on a future episode. That's it for today. As always, God bless, and we will talk to you the next time.